This is the Dan Grasso Show on 98.7 ESPN. Grasso with you. 98.7 ESPN. 800-919-3776 is the telephone number. We're hanging out with you till 10 o'clock. Larry and Gordon will slide over into the chair at that time. Jacob Perry, Jake Montgomery along for the ride producing the program as well on a busy Tuesday night in the world of sports in the greatest city in the world. NYC. Get me on Twitter at Dan Grasa, G-R-A-C-A. We got a busy show for you tonight. We have some fun planned. Got a couple of guests lined up as well, plus plenty of your phone calls, contributions to the program. A little bit later on, we'll catch up with our good pal Anthony Becht, and I I I guess I'm going to have to start getting into the habit of calling him Coach Becht, because for those who don't know, once the XFL starts up business again in, I believe it's February, Our boy Anthony is going to be the head coach of the St. Louis team in the XFL. So he's working for the Rock in the uh, new football league that it returns. uh, But Anthony's still going to be part of our Jets coverage this season right here on 98.7 ESPN. So we'll talk a little football with our pal, the head coach, a little bit later on in the program. And also we're 48 hours away, thereabouts. From the NBA draft over at the Barclays Center, we talked a lot last night about what the Knicks are going to do, what they could potentially do, who they're going to be in the market for. They're going to be able to trade up, get into that number four spot that they so covet, they and a lot of other teams covet, that Sacramento currently has. And, you know, what other moves could they have in store? Our pal John Fanta from Fox Sports is going to join me a little bit later on here, and we'll do some NBA draft preview as far as it pertains to the Knickerbockers. But... We'll start with some baseball here tonight. Why? Well, I'll, it's pretty simple. And unless you've been hiding under a rock for the last few months, I mean, we're starting with baseball because in case you haven't noticed, New York is the baseball capital of the world. Is it not? I mean, with the way that both of these teams are playing, imagine having like one team that's really, really good. But then if you can have two teams that are playing out of their minds this year, like both the Yankees and the Mets are, and the fact that these two teams have the best records in each respective league, New York is the baseball capital of the world. I mean, what would you rather be, Chicago right now? I mean, the baseball in Chicago is an absolute disaster. The White Sox have underachieved. They're under 500. The Cubs are one of the worst teams in baseball. They're getting lit up each and every night. You see what the Pirates did to them last night? And by the way, the Pirates, let me tell you something. A couple of the rookies that were in the lineup last night, O'Neal Cruz specifically, the shortstop, get used to hearing that name. Not only does he have like a 90-mile-an-hour cannon from the shortstop position when he's throwing it over to first base, the dude is 6'7". He's the tallest shortstop in Major League Baseball history. 6'7", got a rocket for an arm. I mean, the, the, the best arm on a shortstop I've ever seen was Sean Dunstan back in the day, for those of you who might remember him. Came up with the Cubbies and then bounced around. He was a Met for a little bit. I think he was on that team in 99, if I'm not mistaken. But Sean Dunstan had the best shortstop arm I've ever seen him, and he would gun that thing over. But this kid last night is just as good as that, if not better. So Pirates last night put a whooping on the Chicago Cubs, and look, Pirates aren't anything great yet this year, but they're coming. They got some dudes. They got some players, but it's not going to happen overnight for them. But it's happening right now for the Mets and the Yankees, and that's all really we should concern ourselves with when you think about this team and these teams in this city, and what could happen. And you really, I mean, how far do you have to go back to where both of these teams were really, really good in the same season? I'm not just talking about like, oh, they could both make the playoffs. I'm talking about legitimately, they have a shot to play in the World Series against each other. And yeah, we know that that happened, by the way, back in 2000. 
I mean, that's 22 years ago. It seems like it was five minutes ago, but it was 22 years, right? I know that both teams were, you know, in 2006, the Mets, I thought, were the best team in the National League, and their road ended against the St. Louis Cardinals in upset fashion in the NLCS. Yankees were really good that year in 2006, but they couldn't get by the Detroit Tigers in that series. Remember A-Rod batting eighth, Joe Torre snuck him down in the lineup there when he was scuffling there, but I think this year has a chance to maybe even leapfrog both of them because if you remember in 2000, Yankees were still the favorites, right? Even though the Yankees weren't as dominant necessarily during the regular season in 2000, they were still a team that had won back-to-back World Series. They had won three of the previous four by that point, and they were still the faves until somebody was going to knock them off. Mets, on the other hand, you know, they were a really, really good team, but the one albatross that was standing in front of them were the Atlanta Braves, right? Mets didn't win that division in 2000. They had to get in as the wild card again, and they didn't have to beat the Atlanta Braves in the playoffs because the St. Louis Cardinals took care of that in the NLDS, so the Mets got to beat up on the Cardinals and not the Braves. And that's how the two teams found each other in the Fall Classic that year. All I'm saying is when you look at both of them this time around, like what's the team that's standing in the Mets way right now in the National League that you say without a doubt there's no way they can beat them? There isn't that team. And then you look in the American League with the Yankees. Like who's the team that could give the Yankees fits? Well, there aren't one of those teams either. Yankees and the Mets are the teams to beat in each of the respective leagues, hands down. I mean, you're talking about a Yankee team that's won 17 of the last 19 games. 17 of 19. They're 50 and 17. I mean, that's almost unheard of. Like, you could get, you could start a simulated season right now with video games, like on MLB The Show, and play 67 games, and you might not go 50 and 17. Like, that's how scary good that they've been this year. And if you're talking about, like, the all-time significance and the records and this and that, you remember that Seattle team? In 2001, that won 116 games, but lost to the Yankees in the LCS that year. That Seattle team was two games ahead of the Yankee pace right now. They were 52 and 15, but that's not important. You know, records and achievements and that sort of thing, that doesn't matter. Like, I don't think the Yankees are going to eclipse that mark of 116 wins in the regular season. I mean, are they even going to get to 114 to where the 98 Yankees got to? I wouldn't even necessarily put my money on that. Why? Well, because... First of all, the game has evolved, and the game has changed from the way it was back in 1998 and even in 2001 with those respective squads. Now it's all about self-preservation. It's all about maintenance. It's all about recovery. It's all about load management. Plus, you factor in where are the Yankees going to be in the month of September this year? Like, barring something completely unforeseen and completely drastic, Yankees are going to have the division wrapped up probably by the middle of September. So for those last couple of weeks of the season, you know what the Yankees are going to do? They're probably going to rest some of their regulars. They're going to make sure that they are as healthy and as fit and as close to 100% as they could possibly be by the time the playoffs roll around. They're not going all out for some silly record, which really doesn't mean anything either. Because a record in winning all those games, like the Seattle Mariners in 2001, just like the 73-win Golden State Warriors a couple of years back in the NBA, just like the Patriots who won the first 18 games of their season back in 2007, you know what all three of those teams had in common? They didn't finish it off with championships. And your season does not mean squat unless you win the trophy at the very end. Right? 
That's what the Yankees have their sights on, not winning 116, 117 games. Don't mean anything. Nothing at all. And if you look at where this club, I mean, they're 12 games up in the division, 12. And we're sitting here on June the 21st. Tampa's going in the other direction. Toronto's got a world of hurt right now when it comes to their pitching staff. You know, Boston's just trying to finally get their legs under them a little bit, and they're starting to play some good baseball, but they're benefiting from those other two teams scuffling. Boston leapfrogged the Tampa Bay Rays now already in the American League East. And you see what Cashman did today? And you know what? Let's give credit where credit is due. Did you see what Cashman did today, by the way? He brought back Albert Abreu, who was on waivers. Albert Abreu was the guy, once upon a time, that Brian Cashman traded to the Texas Rangers to acquire Jose Trevino. And think about how good Jose Trevino's been for this team this year. So the guy that Cashman gave up to get him, now he gets a chance to bring him back for absolutely nothing. Everything is coming up Yankees. Everything is coming up Cashman. And I've been critical of him over the years. You know, even insinuating at times that maybe he's overstayed his welcome. That maybe, you know, it's time for a change. I mean, geez, you don't really see guys run baseball teams for 25 years like Cashman has, especially in this city and for that franchise. But he's to be commended for that. Mets will get into a little bit later on because they don't play for about an hour. They're down in Houston to take on the Astros. Jeff McNeil, not in the lineup, but not going on the injured list either. He's day-to-day with the hamstring injury. And maybe the biggest Mets news involves two guys who aren't even with the team down in Houston. That's Max Scherzer, who's getting a start tonight up in Binghamton for the Rumble Ponies in A, And Jacob DeGrom, who's down in Florida, and he threw to hitters for the first time on this comeback trail through a live batting practice. So this is a Mets team that's in first place. Things are going great for them. And, oh, by the way, maybe the two most important players on their team, two best players on their team, are on the comeback trail and could be back in that rotation and on the bump at City Field sooner rather than later. Scherzer's still slightly ahead of the Grum. So a lot of things to get to here with the baseball, and we will at 800-919-3776. And as I said, a lot of the basketball and the trade rumors, that's still going to be a big part of the conversation as well, which we'll dissect. But when we come back, I want to get into the latest because – Things are like constantly shifting, and they have been over the last few hours, involving a guy who's playing as well as anybody in baseball right now in Aaron Judge and who happens to be the team MVP and probably the league MVP for the New York Yankees. And this question of money and the team doing right by Aaron Judge, that has been a big theme ever since spring training got here. And it's going to continue on until the offseason until it's not an issue anymore. But Aaron Judge has his arbitration hearing coming up here in the next couple of days, and we'll talk into what that could mean specifically for the two sides and specifically Aaron Judge. Again, Anthony Becht on the football a little bit later on tonight. John Fanta on the NBA draft and the college hoops. Stan Grasowitka till 10. It's a Tuesday. It's the first day of summer right here on 98.7 ESPN. Hey, congratulations are in order before we get to the phones. Congratulations. To the one and only Igor Shesterkin, the netminder of the New York Rangers, backstop them to within a couple of games of the cup final, of course. Tonight, the NHL awards, and really no surprise whatsoever. But Igor, 
won the Vesna Trophy for the league's top goaltender. He was one of the three finalists. He's also one of the three finalists for the Hart Trophy, which goes to the league MVP. I don't think he's going to win that one. The only thing that's surprising about Igor's Vesna win is that it wasn't unanimous. He did not receive every single first-place vote, and I thought that he would. Now, I stood corrected because I thought this was a writer's vote, and I had forgotten that it's the National Hockey League GM's that cast the vote for the Vesna Trophy. But Igor got 29 of 32 possible first-place votes. The other first-place votes went to Frederick Anderson of Carolina, Andre Vasilevsky of Tampa Bay. And believe it or not, Ilya Sorokin got the other first-place vote uh, of the Islanders. But Igor, when you add it all up, 29 first-place votes, three second-place votes, 154 total points, easily, easily outdistancing Jacob Markstrom and UC Soros, who were the other two finalists. So congratulations to Igor, and we'll see, uh, I don't know, maybe stranger things have happened. Maybe he uh, will pull an upset and win the uh, Hart Trophy Bingo, for league MVP Bingo, here. El Bongo. Bingo El Bongo. That's right. I miss, see, I miss hockey already. I know we still have the cup final. And by the way, how about the lightning last night? I mean, who saw that one coming? Not just the fact that they won the game, but they won it in lopsided fashion. So now, just like that, a series which looked like it was maybe going to be Colorado in, hell, forget about four. Maybe they'd win this one in three because it was that crazy. And that one-sided. Now Colorado's thinking a little bit. Colorado had to go to the bench and Pavel Francouz. And now there's legitimate question as to what goaltender Jared Bednar is going to throw out there for game number four. Like, you could legitimately say, you know what, Francouz decide, or deserves to play game four. And that's a far cry from where things were for Colorado before they dropped the puck on that game number three last night. So, hey, we got, we got a series. Got a series. It's always hard to dethrone a defending champ, especially a two-time defending champ and what the Tampa Bay Lightning are. So we'll see if we got some surprises here. All right, let's, uh, let's get some phone calls here at 800-919-ESPN, 800-919-3776. Mike and Hawthorne, first up here on 98.7. Michael, how are you? Hey, Dan, how are you? Good, Mike. What's up? Great show. Great show. First time caller. Uh, you know what I wanted to talk about? You know, it seems like everybody has already decided that the – I'm a diehard Yankee fan. It yeah. seems like everybody has already decided that they've got this year locked up. Now, you know as well as I know, all it takes is a couple of injuries, a couple of pitches go down, one of the top players in the field go down, and the whole story can flip. You know, so absolutely. I'm not ready yet to give them this year, this season. I'm just not ready to do it. Well, I, I know you're not going to maybe plan the parade yet, which I don't think you should do. I agree with you 100 percent. But at the very least, there's no way there's no way that they're not winning this division, Mike. I, I mean, they got this division wrapped up already. There is no way they're going to blow a 12 game lead. It's not going to happen. I agree. I agree 100%. They're not going to blow the league. So at the very least, they got the division. You know what I mean? And, Michael, thank you for the phone call. Um, But here's the one thing with the Yankees, and this surprised me as much as anybody. The fact that right now when you start to list the strengths of the Yankees this year and one of the reasons why they're 50-17, and the starting pitching, I never thought in a million years that their starting rotation will be leading the charge for this club. Never in a hundred gazillion years. So that might be the one area when you're thinking about something that could potentially level off. Maybe that's it. 
Now, I just noticed now that Aaron Judge isn't in the lineup tonight. He's in the dugout, and they just showed the graphic on TV about he started, you know, whatever amount of the previous games and so on and so forth. Have they, Jake, have they said anything about why Aaron Judge isn't in the starting lineup tonight? And, and does it tie into the arbitration hearing? I don't know if they've said it on air. We're in the studio with the sound off, but all day they've been saying Aaron Judge being out of the lineup is just a day of rest. It's about time. That's all it is. Yeah, it's nothing to look too deep into. He's played almost every game. He's been great in every game. The lineup in general is kind of weird tonight if you look at it. If the, the lower half of the lineup, a lot of people on Twitter were kind of saying, what the heck, you know, this is a big game against the Rays, but, you know, they've been taking care of the Rays without – all of their guys in the lineup anyway. So maybe they can go out there with this B-team lineup and still get a W. Yeah, Higashioka behind the plate, Marwin's in left field, and then, of course, you got Joey Gallo there bringing up uh, the nine spot. But, I mean, they got enough, certainly in the top half of that lineup there, one through five and to then, where I that just should be to, plenty. I just wanted to mention this. As yeah. much as Joey Gallo has not been great for the Yankees at all this year, and trust me, there's people out there that still try to find certain stats and statistics that back him up, But realistically, Joey Gallo in the nine spot, how many number nine hitters in major leagues are better than Joey Gallo? Right. So right. I mean, he could get a hold of one. That's the bottom line. He absolutely. could get a hold of one anytime he steps into the batter's box. And and that's the thing. Like the Yankees don't need Joey Gallo to be like this all-star. They have so much depth right now in this lineup that, as you said, they can afford to stick him in the number nine hole. And you know what? If he gets one, he gets one. Great. Go out there and just play a good right field. That's all they want Joey Gallo for. And you know what? If he gets on base, he works his walks, which in the past he was prone to do. Maybe not so much this season. They have run producers once again at the top of the order, which hopefully will drive him in. That's what the plan is with the construction of the lineup. But it's working out. 50 up, 17 down. And what more can he ask for for this baseball team and the way they performed here? John and Freehold, up next here on 98.7 ESPN. Johnny, how are we doing? Hey, good evening, Dan. How are you, my friend? John, things are great. What's the word? Let's talk about some Knickerbocker basketball, Let's do Danny. it. Dan, listen, there's some uh, rumors coming out the last few hours here now that get me very, very nervous as a Knicks fan. You know, I'm really starting to question this front office and, and, and what direction they're going in, what their plan is, what they're exactly looking to do here. They're all over the place today with these reports that have been coming out over the last several hours. Uh, there's interest in trading for Malcolm Brogdon, the point guard. Listen, Milwaukee moved on from Malcolm Brogdon because he wasn't good enough and he was often injured, and they upgraded with Drew Holiday and won an NBA championship. Jalen Brunt, they're also talking about clearing out salary cap space by moving Burks and uh, Noel mm-hmm. to free up enough space to give a, a, a max offer to uh, Jalen Brunson. Dan, Jalen Brunson's an undersized guard who had a career year this year and who's, to me, a high-quality backup point guard on a really good team. The Knicks are not a really good team. The Knicks are not close in any way, shape, or form at this point in time. This is not the time to panic. This is not tonight time to make quick fix moves i'm not looking to bring veteran presence in here just to make the playoffs and then get embarrassed and bounce in the first round there's no value in that there's no purpose in going that route uh, there's also rumors that they're talking about either trading back in the first round or trading completely out of the first round in some scenarios it, to, to me that's ludicrous look when's the last time the new york nick organization had a real good plan and engineered a blockbuster draft night trade now Granted, they didn't have maybe the ammunition, but they got the ammunition and they got the assets right now to get that done. And that's why I wanted to bring 
Sam Presti in here because Sam Presti knows how to build a basketball team. He knows how to maneuver the NBA draft. He knows how to make shrewd moves as far as trades and smart and selective free agent signings and really build a team the right way. And it's all about putting a team together the right way and winning an NBA championship. You've got a young veteran in Julius Randle who just two years ago was one of the best players in the entire NBA, was an NBA All-Star, had a Mm -hmm. bad year a year ago, granted, but he was an NBA All-Star, most proven player in the league just two short years ago. You've got young assets that you could move that that have shown promise already since they brought them in. You've got salary cap flexibility with expiring contracts that you could offer to somebody. You've got a, a boatload of both first and second round draft picks. So they absolutely have the ammunition. They've got the ammo to get this done. Uh, Jaden Ivey's got to be the guy, Dan. They got, they got to go out and get Jaden Ivey. Or if it's not Jaden Ivey, it's got to be somebody that they know is a can't-miss guy that they could pair up with uh, R.J. Barrett and hopefully keep Obi Toppin with the team and offer anybody else that you can as far as young players and picks. I would offer multiple first-round picks, multiple second-round picks, expiring contracts. I'd make Julius Randle available in a package. Whatever I got to do to get it done, that's the, that's the wisest way to go and the best direction for this franchise. They haven't had the lead guard. And like I said, Brunson's a backup to me, and I'm not looking to overpay for him. That would be a huge mistake. Brogdon's always hurt. He's getting up there in years, and he's never been a winning player with anybody. That, 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 that doesn't make sense. I want to continue to build this team through the NBA draft. I want to keep adding young assets to this team and having them develop and grow and, and put the pieces in place so that we could talk about an NBA, finally but, talk about an NBA championship coming to New York. But, Johnny, you know what? And, and, and that's a good phone call, and I appreciate it, and you get back to us. Here's the thing, though. And, and look, I don't disagree with you. In a perfect world, you'd love to be able to build through the draft. Nothing like a homegrown team, right? It's great for the fans. You build that relationship. And you hope to see it flourish. I I mean, look at the team that just won the championship, for crying out loud. That's a homegrown team. The core of that team has won four titles with Draymond, Steph Curry, and Klay Thompson, all guys that were drafted by the organization. That's what you hope to cultivate. But here's the problem. When you look at the NBA draft, and the NBA draft probably, I would say pound for pound, is more hit or miss than any of the other drafts. And the reason I say that, look, because there's only two rounds. Hockey draft, there's, what, seven, eight rounds? I can't remember. Football draft is seven rounds, but, like, hundreds of players. And the baseball draft is, you know, 40-something or whatever, how crazy a number of players you got there. So if you're only talking about two rounds worth of players, it's not really that big of a sample size. However, the NBA and the guys that are entering the league It just seems like they get younger and younger and younger each year. If you're looking at the projected lottery picks, you know, and I'm talking about like the consensus prospects that most people would think are going to be lottery selections on Thursday night in this draft, you're probably only talking about one guy that is even 21 years old. So every other one of these guys is under 21. So how can you sit here and know for certainty what you're drafting when you turn in that card. Like, okay, you bring up, like, Jaden Ivey, for example. All right, Jaden Ivey, great. You know what? Phenomenal player. He's got the burst. He's got the tools. He's 20 years old. Think back to how you were at 20 years old. Like, were you fully – have you fully realized your potential when you were 20 years old? Right? There was still some growth. Shoot, I'm not 20 years old anymore, and there's still room for growth for all of us. 
but especially as players here. So you might be looking at, A, a very small sample size. What if these guys only played like one year of college basketball, half a year of college basketball, didn't even suit up on the floor, like the kid who was supposed to be at Kentucky last year in Shaden Sharp. I mean, he hasn't played in you know, a couple of years because of COVID and the way they reclassified everything. So you're going on ceiling. How many players in any sport that we discuss ever reach their ceiling? Very, very few. The majority of them don't. So that's why the draft is such a crapshoot. It's so hit or miss. And I know I might be in the minority or whatever, but when it comes to, like, the draft and cultivating all these picks and so on and so forth, if you could give me a proven quantity, a proven asset, a guy who's already established, been in this league, you know what he is, you know what his strengths, you know what his weaknesses are, he has developed... I'll take these draft choices and I'll throw them at that team and give me that player if he can help me as opposed to rolling the dice and maybe just throwing something up against the wall and hope it sticks and taking one of these 19-year-olds and he may or may not reach his ceiling. That's why the job is so difficult. Mention Aaron Judge not in the lineup tonight here. There's some talk, like we thought all day long that his arbitration hearing was supposed to be tomorrow. Remember, he went to arbitration because the two sides couldn't come to terms on a contract extension before the season, right? They offered seven years, neighborhood of 30 mil per season. Judge said, thanks, but no thanks. I'll bet on myself. And, yeah, it, it, it's the good, 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 good move by Aaron, as we know. But what's interesting to me, and I want to see how this plays out. First of all, they've now since said that Friday is when his hearing is going to be. It's not going to be tomorrow. Yankees are supposedly submitting 17 million for this year and the judge camp is countering with 21 what I don't understand is if you're the Yankees how can you even submit 17 with a straight face when you've offered already 30 million per year right before the season started and the guy's going out there and having an MVP season. I mean, isn't the arbitrator going to, like, laugh right in their face when they put that number in, in front of them? I don't think this is going to be a very difficult or contentious hearing. At least you hope that it wouldn't. And by the way, you know, give Judge a heck of a lot of credit, performance aside, but he's able to do this with all this financial stuff hanging over his head. And even this week with the arbitration hearing pending, that he's still going out there and doing his thing and helping his team win ball games, But... Uh, and that's kind of like foolish from the Yankees standpoint. You're going to offer 17 when right before the season started, you offered the guy over 30 million a year. I, I, I just don't get it. But we'll see what they rule here. Jeff's in Garden City. He's up next here on 987 ESPN. Jeffrey, how are you? I'm great, Dan. How are you? Jeff, outstanding. So, What's going so, on? Outstanding. You know, here, let me just start up. I'm not a Yankee fan. Yep. And I'll tell you why. I'm a Met fan. But here's the thing about the Yankees. Historically, I'm old enough to remember this. I think that when the Yankees take this stuff to the press with this negotiation with Judge, it's the same thing all over. The fact that they did the same thing with the greatest Yankee of all time, Mariano Rivera, who wouldn't be where they were without him. And they went to the same exercise with him you know this is they bring it out and they start to go you have the greatest players in perhaps baseball at times and you still go now, i don't want to talk about that because mm -hmm. that's one of the things that upsets me with the organization that they're constantly you know offering what you said 30 and then 17 makes no sense to me so i want to talk about the mets 
this two-game series with Houston will show a lot about how resilient and how terrific this team truly is. A, I think these are two great managers, uh, Buck and, and Baker. I think this is a telling sign. If you, if you take your eyes off this two-game series, you're missing a hell of a lot because this Met team actually has the same DNA as their manager. I cannot believe how lucky we are to have this manager who sees this team, who they are. They've had players, you know, all their players have not just drank the Kool-Aid, they believe in it, and they're playing. Historically, the Mets have always had great pitching, but look what's happened to DeGrom and others. They simply find a way to win. It reminds me of Belichick and the Patriots. No matter who was injured on any given Sunday, they were still a threat because that coach knew how to coach the players. The DNA and the coaches were aligned. And that's why, although the Yankees have the best record in baseball, the, the, actual, the actual thing is the Mets are, in my opinion, the better team batting-wise, you know, batting average-wise, on-base percentage, better than even the New York Yankees, even though they're not in, they have the best record. That is the team to watch. And I think this two-game series will undoubtedly be what I think we might see in the postseason because this Mets team is full of Buck Showalter, and I don't mean in a negative way, a positive vibe. And this is my comment. That's well, it. Jeff, uh, you know, the, the beauty of baseball is, and I thank you for the phone call, it, it's a marathon, right? You play 162, and more often than not, the team that has the best record during the regular season, that's not the team that ends up winning the World Series. More often than not. Think back last year. The Atlanta Braves last year, after 104 games of the regular season, they, I think, had a losing record. They were 51-53, and 53, or 53-51. and 51. But essentially, they were a glorified 500 team over 100 games in, right? So they were scuffling a little bit. They made some trades. They brought in those outfielders, and they caught fire with each and every one of them. We're not going to know until we get to the playoffs. Now, you need to be healthy. And, yeah, if everything lines up with the Mets and they have DeGrom and they have Scherzer and those arms are healthy, I like their chances against anybody in a short series with that pitching. You mentioned their offensive approach. You know, when you throw out this stupid approach from the previous regime and the analytics and the the, the, the Hugh Quattlebaum disaster from last year, it's a different mentality. And these dudes just go out there and grind at bats. You put the ball in play. Make the other team catch the ball. It's a simple I mean, it sounds simple, but it's uber important. Make the other team catch the ball. If you strike out, you're giving the team a free out. Put it in play. Make the other team make a play. I mean, look at the Tampa Bay Rays, for example. All right? Tampa Bay, if we know anything about them historically, how they do business, they're a team that's not going to have the flashiest payroll. They're going to have one of the smallest payrolls. But they're a team that prides itself on roster flexibility, guys playing different positions, you know, matchups, that type of thing, and doing the fundamentals right, like catching the baseball. This year, and it happened again last night in the game against the Yankees, Tampa Bay allowed an unearned run because they made another error. Tampa Bay has allowed the most unearned runs in Major League Baseball this season. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 45. And ironically enough, the Rays are scuffling right now. They're in a little bit of a funk. And you look at that record, it's not as flattering as you would expect it to be for the Tampa Bay Rays. And as we've seen it in the past couple of years, and they're in fourth place. Got to do the little things. You know, St. Louis, the Cardinals last year, they made that, remember they had a crazy run through the month of September? What did they win, like 18 straight games? Like they were outside looking in. They go on that crazy winning streak, and they end up sneaking in and getting that wild card spot, and then they lose to the Dodgers in the wild card game. But still, 
Why did the Cardinals play so well? Why were they able? Because they were the best defensive team in baseball. They caught the baseball. And every single interview that I did with an opposing manager, an opposing player, talking about the Cardinals, do, making that run late in the season, every single one of them said the same thing. Why are the Cardinals so good? They said, because they catch the baseball. See, that fundamentals still do apply when it comes to winning. Nick in New Jersey up next here on 98.7. Nick, how are you? Dan, what's up, my man? It's Nick Brooks. How are you? Nick! What's up, baby? How's things, bro? Not much, not much. Hey, I just got off the phone with your producer. He said, hey, man, you want to talk? I said NBA draft. He said, you want to talk Knicks? I said, no, I don't want to darken the mood. It's, it's pretty oh, high right now. I see what you did there. That's Nick throwing some shade. Nick, a, a, a former Scarlet Knight basketball player, so he's near and dear to my heart. He's one of my boys. So anything for you, bro. What's going on? Hey, I want to ask you, man, who do you have uh, going number one on Thursday, just out of curiosity? Who I would take number one or who do I think is going number one? Give me both. All right. I think, to me, the safest pick in the draft, and it's, look, it's going to be some combination of those three bigs, right? Jabari Smith, Paolo Banquero, and Chet Holmgren. Those three guys, some order, are going to be one, two, and three, or else I would be shocked. I think Paolo is the safest choice in the draft. Now, does that mean Orlando's going to take them? I don't know. But he's the most NBA-ready. He's got an NBA body. To me, that will take you a little bit longer, or I mean a little bit quicker in terms of accelerating where you need to go as a team with development. Now, does he have as high a ceiling as Jabari Smith? Does he have a high ceiling as Jen Holmgren? No. I think that when push comes to shove, because it's Orlando, I think that Jabari Smith is going to be the top pick in this draft. That's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. I'm going to have to you? respectfully disagree with you on that one, man, and go with Chet Holmgren. He's a unicorn. Why. Chet's a with, unicorn. With, yeah, man, and based on the, the, the friends that I still have who have played college basketball against the three guys who you had just mentioned, the best way to sum it up, Jabari Smith and Paolo Bancaro are talents that you would probably see once every 10 to 15 years. Chet Holmgren is a talent you'll probably see once every 25 to 30 years. You know what worries me about Chet, though, Nick? Is that he's a skinny so, kid. Yeah, dude, he's so slim. And, like, I want my guys – I'm not a big load management guy. I want my guys out there playing as many games as possible. You know, if he's going to play between 75 and 82, great. But can he withstand a long NBA season? I know he's not going to play down in the low box as much as normal seven-footers used to do. He'll probably be hanging out on the perimeter knowing his skill set. But can this guy hold up over a long season? When I see him, you know what image, like, flashes in my mind on the next level? Porzingis. Oh, yeah, except he wants it a little bit more. And you mentioned him being skinny. Um they did say the same thing about Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Those guys were wiry thin when they came in the league, and now look at them. Well, Steph's a guard anyway. We don't expect much from Steph. He wasn't going to get, you know, hang out with the big dudes down low. But you're right. He had to build up his body here. And Giannis, the same thing. Now, Giannis, though, um, I don't think he's as big as this kid could potentially be, right? This dude's a seven-footer. What is he? Is he seven-footer, seven-one, someone like that? Oh, I saw him. I saw him last summer in Vegas at the summer league before he en- enrolled in Gonzaga, and he is a legit seven-two. Two. There you go. Well, see, the thing that I'm wondering if it's not going to be one of these three guys, could there potentially be somebody that 
so-called crashes that party. And they're a dark picked. horse. Yeah. That's what I mean. Uh, I mean, th- there's other guys there, but you're, you'd, it, it, again, it depends on what the team needs because outside of those three guys, you're looking at probably somebody who's a guard or a wing. But again, if you want, like, it depends on the teams. If it's Orlando first, God, they they can take any help they can get. So in that case, you did. In that case, you draft the best player, which is. Chet. I mean, like, think about a guy like even a guy like Ben Matherin, for example, from Arizona. Like that dude's got crazy athletic ability, but he's only twenty years old. You know what I mean? Like, so what's his ceiling going to be potentially? I think if he goes in the right system, he could explode. I know that, and, and you know, we're Big Ten guys, right? I mean, watch mm-hmm. so much of Keegan Murray, and I seen his coach today, but it's his coach. I saw Franny over on, I think it was on NBA radio, say that he thinks that Keegan Murray should be the number one pick in the draft. But that's one of his guys. I don't know what Keegan Murray's going to translate to in the next level. I, I, I don't know if he's even an all-star on the next level, to be honest with you. Yeah, he's like a Jeremy Grant type of guy. Fair. From what Fair. I've watched. Fair. And look, he was great in college. That's not, not bad. bad. But, not bad. Know, it's, not, it's not Chet. It's not Paolo. It's not Jabari. But that's the problem with this, right? I mean, these dudes are like 18, 19, 20 years old. I was saying this a little while ago. It's so hard to get a read on them because most of them haven't even come close to realizing their potential yet. And not all of these guys are going to go through the ceiling, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, again, that's what the NBA is nowadays, man. The younger, the better. You can squeeze more years out of them. And even if their first year is kind of rocky, you know, you could pull a James Wiseman, Ben Simmons red shirt, sit him out, put him in the weight room, let him watch film, and then, you know, all right, you've had some time to know what you're, what you're signing up for, and uh, let's see if our investment is going to work out full term. Yeah, the only problem for the Nets is that Ben Simmons is still red-shirting. You know what I mean? That was supposed to be, was supposed yeah, like to be I said, a long Like I said, I don't want to darken the mood for your listeners tonight, man. I try to stay away from Nets and Knicks, but I appreciate you, man. Nick, you're the best. You get back to me, all right, bro? There's Nick. Nick Brooks, my buddy, used to play ball at uh, Rutgers under Coach Peichel. By the way, by the way, Malcolm Brogdon, we had a call about him a little bit earlier in the program, just wanted to run the money by you. He's still under contract for three more years, 22.6, 21.6, and 23.3. So you do some quick math, that's about $67 million and change left on the contract for Malcolm Brogdon. Malcolm Brogdon, a guy that you want to pay that much money to that is ultimately going to lift your franchise to another level? Like you said, you know, he wasn't part of that Milwaukee team when they were champs. And he hasn't necessarily flashed to a certain degree when it comes to the postseason and the opportunities that he's had up to this point. And remember, you're talking about the Knicks. You want to be able to take this thing to the next level, not just, oh, let's let's try to sneak in and get in the playing tournament. No, it's how can we make this team that's, you know, one day going to start winning playoff series. Yanks and Rays knotted up at two apiece. They're in the third inning down in Tampa. Mets and the Strohs about to get underway down in Houston with Trevor Williams on the mound. Max Scherzer got through his rehab start tonight in Binghamton, passed that along for you through 60-something pitches, uh, gave up a couple of runs, walked off pain-free, big ovation, and that's the most important thing. If he feels good when he wakes up in the morning, it's probably going to be that you'll see him pitch in Miami this weekend when the Mets go play the Marlins. So all good news on the injury front as far as that is concerned. 
Igor Shosturkin, Vesna Trophy winner tonight for the New York Rangers as the league's top goalie. Finished third in the Hart Trophy voting for the league MVP. No real surprise there. Um, Austin Matthews of the Maple Leafs won the MVP. Connor McDavid finished in second. So, uh, again, a lot to be proud of with Igor, with how he played this season and everything that he accomplished, and hopefully something that, you know, he can build from and maybe even improve upon going into next year. Maybe he'll steal one of those hard trophies for, uh, you know, the next couple of seasons for the New York Rangers, and more importantly, steal a conference finals and hopefully get you to the next round to where you're going to be playing for Lord Stanley. A uh, couple of football items for today. Number one, the Deshaun Watson news you know, keeps getting interesting here. And that is the fact that the attorney for all of the individuals who were putting suits out there against the Browns quarterback put out a statement early this morning letting us all know that 20 of the 24 women have settled financially out of court with Deshaun Watson. Um I don't know if you're going to get any sort of information in terms of the financials or the particulars or if there's any sort of confidentiality clauses or anything like that. But the bottom line is, is now 20 of them, he doesn't have to worry about going to court. The four outstanding cases, which are still out there, I think that to a person, they probably still want to have their day in court and go through the entire process to prove that. Not only are they innocent here in what they're alleging, but that Deshaun Watson is going to be held responsible for what he did. Now, they did come to an agreement that if any of those are indeed going to be heard in court, that it's not going to happen until after the football season at the earliest. So I think that they said either February or March of next year is the earliest that any of those cases are going to be heard um, in court. Now, one of the four that is still unsettled, it's the original accuser, Ashley Solis. Now, if you watch the feature that they did on Real Sports on HBO, the Brian Gumble show, you know, she was interviewed. She came forward. She was one of the first ones to come forward. It might have been the first one to come forward, as a matter of fact, and, you know, let the whole, the whole world know about what Deshaun Watson's been up to and, and, and what he, um, you know, type of the behavior that he has gotten himself into, not just with her, but with several other individuals. Remember, the New York Times reported that it was as many as 66 you 66 different uh, masseuses over a 17-month period, for crying out loud. Now, the NFL, because, look, everybody's, yes, you want justice. Yes, you want, you know, what's fair and what's right and all those things. But I think the majority of the people that when they see this Deshaun Watson story and they follow the case and they do all these things, they only care about one thing and one thing only, and that's, all right, how is that going to impact Sean Watson, the football player? And how is this going to impact him being available on the field come September when the Browns start? Well, a league spokesman for the NFL said, what happened today with all of these settlements, that has no implication whatsoever on what the NFL decides to do in terms of a suspension. And I think that you kind of knew that already, but they still had to go out there and specify that. I still think Watson is headed for a lengthy suspension. Um, I don't think you're going to see him play at least half the season. I think you might be looking at, at this point, 10, 12 games minimum. I wasn't sure it would necessarily be that high at first. I thought maybe he would get six. But the more and more you hear and the more and more you hear about these reports and, you know, what, what the NFL has up their sleeves and, you know, if it was six games or whatnot for, you know, Ezekiel Elliott, 
four or I mean four games for Ezekiel Elliott, four games for Ben Roethlisberger, and so on and so forth. And that was just you know one or two females that were involved in those cases. Now you're talking about sixty six. I mean, how many suits? I mean, it wouldn't even shock me if Watson gets the full season, really and truly. And then if that's the case, okay, what do you do then if you're the Cleveland Browns? Right, you went all in to acquire this guy. You then gave him a record contract for $230 million in guaranteed money, money that we have never seen before given to an NFL player. And in this case, a flawed NFL player and a guy that you might not even have at your disposal when the season begins at the bottom line very least locally Jet fans you're not going to see Deshaun Watson under center in week two when you play him it's probably going to be Jacoby Brissett or somebody else so when the Jets go into Cleveland that second you know uh, what is it September 19th I think the date is not going to be Deshaun Watson under center Jets aren't going to have to worry about him so what do you do if you're the Browns like, they're never going to come out and admit to this, but you know that they've been having these conversations behind the scenes. I mean, Cleveland's a team that has aspirations of going to the playoffs. They think they could win with Deshaun Watson. If you're not going to have that guy, your offense is, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust, basically, with Jacoby Brissett. They'll never cop to it. But, I mean, why not just go ahead and tank the season? Like, do it indirectly. And then you're going to get yourself in, you know, a top three draft choice or whatever next year. You figure Watson's going to be eligible to play again in 2023. And then you're going to bring in even another high-priced, high-talented player in the draft because you're not going to have a good season on the field. And you know what? The Browns deserve it. Browns deserve it. You know, they went all in on this guy knowing that the situation still had not been resolved or it may not be resolved. But they said, how the heck with it? Here's all the money you want. Come be our quarterback. And, yeah, you know what? They treated Baker Mayfield like dirt, but it's part of life in pro sports. Happens all the time. But I'll tell you right now, if you give them their choice, who do you think gives them a better chance to win in a football game this year? Uh, Baker Mayfield or Jacoby Brissett? Whether you like Mayfield or not, it's better than Jacoby Brissett. It's going to be a long, long, long fall slash winter in Cleveland for that football team. They just, I mean, they just can't get things right. They just can't get things right. 800-919-3776. Subi, Midtown, up next here on 98.7 ESPN. Subi, what's up? Hey, Dan. Regarding the Knicks, would you rather take four consistent seasons of, like, first-round playoffs, or would you take, like, a tanking job, like you were just mentioning, like, hey, because overwhelming talent, like Steph Curry type? Because next year there's going to be overwhelming talent from France. I think his name is Victor something. But, like, what would you rather take, four consistent seasons or, like, a tank job like the Sixers did and just get, like, the best player who's ever been for the past 10 years? What do you think? I'd rather have the consistency, consistent winning. That's what I would have. And you know what? These unicorn-type players, how many of them really and truly pan out? Honestly, how many of them really and truly pan out? Like, when was the last one that we've seen come into the NBA? I mean, does Anthony Davis count in that category? Does he? Like, realistically, is Anthony Davis even considered that guy? Like, he won a championship, but Anthony Davis, you know, is a guy who is always hurt, finally got a championship when he joined up the Lakers and LeBron James. So I don't even know if he qualifies. 
Remember, Zion was thought to be that guy, but, I mean, Zion, number one, he can't stay out of the refrigerator, and number two, he can't stay on the floor, so he doesn't fit. Um, I, I mean, was John Wall that – it was tough to look at John Wall, that guy, because he was like a point guard. You know, like you rarely see those type of guys who you say, yeah, put the franchise on my back. I'm going to take you where you need to go. I didn't look at that guy like that. You know, probably in the last 15 years, I think the closest we had was Anthony Davis going into the draft. And I don't think he's necessarily panned out that way. Other guys that were number one overall picks, I mean, they were good. They were successful. You know, they were winning players, all-stars, that type of thing. But I wouldn't say that they were somebody that I would tank for completely. Like, LeBron James was that guy. Tim Duncan was that guy. Um, you know, I'm trying. Shaquille O'Neal was that guy. There's only been like a handful of them in the last, what are we saying, 30 years. And I don't want to hear somebody from France or any. There's nobody in college. I mean, we know there's nobody in this draft that you would say, oh, got to make sure we get that guy. No, it's a roll of the dice. And the reason I, that I say I would rather just make the playoffs every year and see what happens, because you never know. You know, you never know. And I'm not talking about, like, NBA purgatory to where I want to be the eighth seed every year. That's purgatory. I'm not advocating for that. That way you make the playoffs, you get bounced in the first round every season, and then you're not even good enough lottery-wise with the ping-pong balls to maybe even sneak up there and get yourself like a top three pick and, and land a guy that can maybe transform your franchise, right? That's purgatory. I don't want any part of that. But if you're telling me I could be a four seed, a five seed, you know, maybe like what the Knicks were, not this season, but the previous season, right? You have a good year. You make the playoffs, and sometimes you run up against a team that's just as good as you are. You might win some. You might lose some. But I'd still rather take my shot. I want excitement around my team. I want enthusiasm. I want attention. I want what every this whole city reacted towards the Knicks a couple of years ago when they got in there against the Atlanta Hawks. And yet it didn't work out the way they wanted, but damn, that was a fun ride. Damn, that was exciting. In addition to the uh, latest on Deshaun Watson, also this afternoon, we find out that Rob Gronkowski is stepping away from football again. Remember, this is his second retirement. So can we really be convinced that this is his last one? Remember, he retired once after that last year in New England and, you know, says his body hurts and he can't play anymore. And then what happened? Tom went down to Tampa. He decided to join Tom back down in Tampa, rejuvenated all that stuff, and lo and behold, you know, he got an extra Super Bowl ring out of it here. But I don't know. Might be the last time. I think he'll only play for the Bucks and nobody else, and it all depends if, you know, Tom picks up the phone. They were joking about it, but it's true. I think if Tom picks up the phone and calls him and says, hey, man, we need you to come out of retirement, I think Gronk will do it. The question is, how long is it going to take him to get back into football shape and to get ready to go out there and withstand playing in the National Football League? But in the event that it is it, a couple of things, though, on his legacy. Number one, and, and this isn't really said lightly, because the tight end position has evolved over the years, right? Um, back in the day, I mean, the tight end was essentially no more than an extra lineman. He was pretty much primarily a blocker, and that was it. 
didn't really affect or you know factor into the passing game all that much at all. Then you started to progress a little bit later on into the 70s, the 80s, and whatnot. And then you found like these tight ends that could actually do both. You know, they could block, they can actually catch the ball. And then some of them became like really like prolific pass catchers to where they were changing the position and the way that it, you know, kind of evolved. Like Kellen Winslow Sr., for example. I mean, that dude was like a, just a, a bigger wide receiver, if you will. And then you get into. You know, the 90s and, and you know, even in the 80s, you know, like the Mark Bavaros of the world, those rough and tough guys who, you know, laid it out on the line. But, you know, you still kind of almost thought of them as blockers. But yet they'd catch the ball. They'd fight for the dirty yards, that sort of thing. And then the Tony Gonzalez's would come along a little bit later on. Just, you know, these athletic freaks. Antonio Gates would follow. You know, guys that played basketball in college. But they were just so skilled athletically that, hey, you put them on the football field and they were still pretty darn good too. Like if LeBron James... Right, LeBron played like high school football or whatever. If LeBron James like played football in the NFL, he'd be like a tight end. Yeah, that that would be like his primo position, and he'd be probably pretty good at it too. But I think that Rob Gronkowski, and when he came along, remember he came into the league in what 2010, I want to say 2009, 2010, somewhere around there. Had had um, backslash neck issues at Arizona, which is why he wasn't a first round pick. And then uh, Belichick and company got him there. I think, what, early in the second round he was taken? I think it goes without saying, number one, he's the second best draft choice that Bill Belichick ever made. And, of course, we know who the first guy was. And, you know, there's no shame in taking a backseat to that guy. And he's probably going to go down as one of the maybe the top three tight ends of all time. Like, And you wouldn't think that. And that's not thrown around loosely because you know how I feel about recency bias, but I think that it's true. You know, when you think about what, because he could do both. He could block, he could catch, major red zone target. I mean, he was basically unguardable on the field, uncoverable. You put a linebacker on him, he'll run past him. You put a DB on him, he'll outmuscle him. He was just a huge mismatch problem. You know, I still believe in, you know, you give some respect to those that laid the foundation. You know, the John Mackeys of the world, once upon a time with the Baltimore Colts. Mike Ditka was a hell of a tight end, you know, before he became, of course, you know, the famous coach of the Bears. Uh, Tony Gonzalez. And then I think Gronk. I mean, those, those are, that is the Mount Rushmore of tight ends in NFL history. And, you know, there were some really good ones, too, that, you know, have a, have a, have a claim to be made. You know, I mentioned Kellen Winslow, Ozzie Newsom. Before he was a Hall of Fame executive, or at least he should be, was a Hall of Fame tight end out of Alabama and then to Cleveland. Great player. Guys like that. Um, but Gronk had a phenomenal career. Good personality. He'd probably go do TV. That's what he was doing when he didn't play that one year. He'll probably go right back to TV, whether it's Fox, whoever. And he'll have some fun with that. And if he gets the itch, if he wants to go back out on the field, well, probably be reunited with Tom just one more time. If the Bucks have a chance to win a championship this year, you know, if they're in contention, once you get to, like, October, November, you don't think that Brady's going to pick up the phone and call Gronk and say, hey, buddy, get ready. Get in shape. Start putting that weight back on again. Hit the gym. And come help me out here to try to win another ring, as if Tom really needs it. 800-919-3776. Let's say hi to Ira. He's in Staten Island. He's up next year on 98.7. What's up, I? How are you? Hey, what's happening, man? Good to hear you. And, uh... Boy, I tell you, you're right about Gronkowski. Just amazing. And, like, you could you see the Bucks like, somewhere 
they're like 11 and, you know, I don't know, let's say they're 8 and 2 at some point. You know, it's late November. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then he makes the call, and of course he'll come back. You know, he's not going to turn Brady down. But I'm really calling, um, looking forward to hearing back. But you brought up Deshaun Watson. Yeah. And, you know, it's amazing. <clears throat> In the New York uh, Radio Airways, when that whole deal was going down before the Browns signed him, I remember the callers and the hosts and everybody talking about the Jets have to go get Watson. And, man, thank goodness they didn't do this. And, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, for the Browns, you know, this thing is a messy situation. But, man, don't you think it would be in a good uh, near half to turn around and say, listen, you know, Baker, you know, you're trying to take your career to another place. Come, you know, let, let's just kind of forget what happened. Play this year, you know. Get get just you know let's try to win some games and then you're a free agent and then you can go sign a big contract with somebody else because I don't see what other alternative they have because there's no way in the world they're parading out Jacoby Brissett week one. I think they might. I really and truly think they might because I think there's too much water under the bridge, Ira, with the Baker Mayfield situation. Um, Do you think it's that bad? It's 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 that bad. Remember they they essentially went out there. And said that they were looking to, you know, upgrade the position. And I forgot what the exact term they used was. But they were knocking, essentially, Baker Mayfield while Baker Mayfield was still technically a part of the roster and still the team's quarterback. So this was before, like, the pursuit for Deshaun Watson was finalized. I guess they were doing everything behind the scenes. And Baker's sitting there like, geez, you're, you're talking about my position while I'm still here. I, I, he wants no part of it. Remember, he put out that long statement, like the long goodbye, essentially. I think this, is, this could be, could be. You remember what happened when Peyton Manning missed that whole season with the Colts when he had the next surgery? And they went out there and they tried, you know, Kerry Collins and, you know, I don't know how many other different quarterbacks they tried, but they were awful. They had the worst record. And then they ended up with the top pick, which turned into Andrew Luck for them the next year. So... Cleveland might be headed for one of those seasons if the NFL throws the book at Deshaun Watson, and I kind of get a feeling they will. Well, you know what? I'm not going to cry about it because, you know what, week two I have no problem nope. going into Cleveland and, and beating the Browns with Jacoby nope. Brissett, a quarterback. Ira, their problem, not ours. You know what I'm saying? Their that, problem, not that's ours. Exactly, that's exactly <laughs> And do me a favor. I know you I, I know you got that coming on. Yeah. Just today, if you don't mind, just tell them, I'll never forget that catch with a couple of seconds left uh, when Vinny against Indianapolis – like about Christmas weekend, 2000 or 2001. Sunday night game. Touchdown. And I always remind it when I talk to him. So if you pass it on, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, that was uh, the big red zone target, Anthony Beck. And we will, I thanks for the phone call. That was a big one. Uh, I actually just saw the highlights of that on the, um, on the internet the other day. Somebody had posted that. That was a big game. That was, and 2001, you know, that was a year where you, you were still trying to get an identity of that team. And it was late in the season. I think that put him at nine and five if I'm not mistaken, 9-5 and five with two games to go, and they were sitting pretty for a playoff spot. Then they came home the next week, and they played Buffalo, and Buffalo was terrible that year. And they lost the game. It was one of those stinkers where, you know, they were sleepwalking all day. They couldn't do anything on offense. It was like a field goal fest. And then I remember, like, ultimately on that final possession, like the Jets were driving, and then they, like, ran out of time like down near the red zone or something like that. And the whole big controversy was whether or not like they called, you know, Paul Hackett dialed up the wrong play and, you know, should they have just spiked the ball to save time? Or I, I remember that. And so what happened was it forced them the following week to have to go all the way out to Oakland and have to beat the Raiders in a win and you're in game. And Oakland was the better team, of course. 
Uh, and Oakland, I don't think, needed the game. They were ready in the playoffs, and that was when Jets beat Oakland. John Hall kicked like a 50, I'm going to say 53, 54-yard field goal at the buzzer on grass. That was a tough kick uh, to beat the Raiders, got the Jets in the playoffs. That was Herman Edwards' first year. And then what happened? That earned them a trip right back to Oakland the following week for Wild Card Weekend. And then the Raiders, you know, uh, stuck it to them and uh, bounced them in the uh, Wild Card round. Boy, it, I was sick of the Raiders for those couple of years because they ended the Jets' season in two consecutive years, in 2001 and 2002. They lost out in the playoffs there. Not good. Not, not, not good. Ryan and Queens up next here on 98.7. What's up, Ryan? How are you? What's happening, Dan? Top of the evening. So, uh, the Jets, Jets fans just should hope and pray that Brissett has one of those curves painter days. That's the guy that came for Peyton Manning, and boy, yep. was he awful. Anyway, Bavaro is another tight end that deserves mentioning. And um, as far as the uh, Deshaun Watson contract, just look at the money and the way the money is being applied and structured. That's all you need to know as, as far as this season, what they know, what they don't know. It's all gravy. You look at the money, you see he's getting paid $1 million this year. It is not a coincidence. They know what's going to happen. And one way or another, they have a strategy for it. And one last thing, Dave Rothenberg, this fraudulent host you guys have in, in 98.7. This guy. What's up? What did Dave do? What did Dave do? Every, every morning he rips apart. Uh, your guys, what's his name? John, Jonathan Winsor, Winsor, whatever his name is. And he says, since the day he sent the broom when we were up two, when the Rangers were up two nothing plus two goals, all we did is lose. So he believes in putting the kibosh. Then he goes and, and defends Michael K. like vigorously. How can people say the moment he mentions it, the, the, the perfect game, the no-hitter's gone – Listen, you're either on one side of the fence or the other. I'm on the one side. I'm on the side of the fence with the reasonable people. There is no kibosh. Garrett called in for a no hitter because he just couldn't throw a no hitter. Has nothing right. to do with Michael K. Same as the Rangers, but this fraudulent host that exists over there that is the rah rah. I'm the biggest fan. I know sports. Listen, we hear your Google keys every second of the day during that horrific segment that you have. So let's call let's call a spade a spade and let's be real. Have a wonderful right, we'll, show. we'll get we'll get to Ryan. We'll get to the bottom of that. And, and I appreciate the phone call there. I, I I don't know what the hell he's talking about, but okay, whatever. Um, but I did. I, I think he was alluding to like the announcer jinx things. Do I believe in the announcer jinx? No, I do not. It, it, it's silly. It means nothing. You know, like a guy's pitching a no-hitter like last night, Garrett Cole, if the announcer says repeatedly, hey, everybody, Garrett Cole is a no-hitter. I was saying it all night long on the air last night while it was going on. When they got into the sixth inning, the seventh inning, you think that Garrett Cole gave up a hit because he heard me say it while he was down on, on the mound at Tropicana Field? Of course not. Silly. Anyway, as promised, when we come back, we'll talk some football. Former Jet tight end, part of our Jet pregame crew on the radio, and now the soon-to-be head coach of the St. Louis team in the XFL. It's our pal Anthony Becht. He joins me next. It's Dan Grasso with you here on 98.7 ESPN. Time now to go out to the guest line, and we were talking some football, and who better to talk some football with than a guy who played it, guy who talks about it, and now starting up in February, he's actually going to be coaching it 
running his own football team, part of the XFL. He is the new head coach of the St. Louis Battle Hawks, and he's our good friend Anthony Becht. Hey, Coach, how are you? Just to clarify, there are no cities and no teams that have been announced yet. So I am a, I'm a head coach of the XFL, and then when no cities come out, we'll see where I land. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the Internet lies then, huh? Well, you know, there's a lot of speculation of locations and places and where people are going. I mean, you know, I, I think once it comes from corporate, that's when we know where everybody's going to be and, uh, you know, all the cities will be and stuff like that. So uh, there is a lot of speculation out there. But as of right now, you know, we're, we're all waiting for our assignments and uh, we're fired up for the announcement come this summer. Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll leave it at that. Well, you know what? Congratulations, then, on your head coaching job in the XFL and whatever city you get assigned, my friend. Uh, I'm very Thank excited you. for you. You know that. No, yeah, fired up about it. Uh, it's a unique opportunity for me. I'm very humbled to you know, have the opportunity to just uh, you know, be in a position to, to get it and uh, doing a lot of work right now, trying to find some players. Uh, get a great coaching staff put together, get a plan put together. And, you know, before you know it, you know, the fall will be, uh, will be ending. The NFL season will come to an end and it'll be our turn to shine. So uh, can't wait to do it. At, but in the meantime, you know, there is a, uh, along with that, you know, I'll still be uh, doing my Jets obligations. Uh, it's going to be great to still continue to follow and, and talk about the NFL and, and all those good things. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's going to be fun. Oh, we weren't going to let you off easy, of course. I mean, you, you had to still do the Jets thing. You want, you want to do this head coaching thing. that You do that on your own time, but you still have to, of course, be with us with the Jet broadcast here. Um, what has the process been like for you, though? You know, since, you know, okay, you're going to be a coach of a team here. I mean, you, you talked about yeah. putting together a staff. I mean, in terms of players, watching tape, this and that. I mean, is it still too early to get a read on what type of players might be available? Because – Training camps and cuts and like that haven't even happened yet from the NFL. You're right. Yeah. So, you know, we're in the process of uh, having our showcases. We have six showcases uh, throughout the summer. We just had two, one in D uh, DC and the other one down here in Bradenton, Florida at IMG Academy. Uh, basically about 250 athletes um, at each of those showcases. And again, it's, you know, th this is a, an open opportunity for guys out there that are, you know, still trying to live their dream. Uh, still trying to, you know, make that professional opportunity come true. Uh, that's what this XFL league is all about. And uh, you're right. You know, the majority of our players will be those 20, 21 players that don't get signed back after preseason, that don't make the practice squad. And, uh, you know, they're looking for a place to play. And, and, and whatever reason, whether it's they need more reps, they didn't get reps, uh, you know, they weren't talented enough, they were missing something. And that's where we come in and fill that void. So, uh, you know, look, we're, we're scrubbing, we're scrubbing the land of players that are actively not uh, affiliated anywhere that mm -hmm. have some experience that are, you know, looking for that opportunity. And uh, it's a good way to, you know, see those guys. I was very thorough in watching every single player move around, do their times, you know, run routes, catch balls, backpedal, whatever it may be to show me. I'm, I took that time and we'll go back and look at those guys again. And then once the preseason starts going in the league then we can start kind of looking at those guys and once practice squads get full that's when we'll have that pool of players to start looking uh to potentially put into our draft pool as well 
USFL has been happening the last couple of months. As a supplemental football league in their own right, how much have you guys been paying attention to that in terms of a lot of things, in the way they, they do business, in a way that you know they go about scouting players and the type of players that are in that league? I mean, how much have you been keeping an eye on what the USFL has been up to here? You know what, you know, Danny Garcia, you know, Dwayne Johnson and Redbird Capital, you know, our ownership uh, have great vision. Uh, their vision is much different than maybe some of the visions of other leagues and other types of, uh, you know, corporations that are doing things currently. Uh, I think that right now they feel like they have a great plan in place uh, to do something really special. Uh, XFL 2.0, although it's not the same, it's not going to be the same ownership, it's all different. They were able to pull some things from from the successes of that before COVID hit. And then, of course, you know, add to what they want this thing to be. They're very passionate about it. If you, if you hear uh, DJ talk about, you know, his experiences as a player, and he was that 54th guy. He didn't have a, a football league to go to. He went to the CFL. It wasn't his brand of football. It didn't have something to lean on to fulfill his football dreams. Uh, this is something that they're passionate about. And, you know, the, the people that they're hiring the, and how they're investing their time and the, the different things that they're going to get to make sure the player experience is optimal to prepare them for whatever journey they want to be, whether they want to be in the XFL for, for their career, whether they want to jump professionally at the highest level of the NFL. We're going to do our best to accomplish all those things for them. So uh, I think their plan is good, and, you know, they're going to be them. And I think the XFL is going to have, a, you know, a, a great road ahead of them, and I think it's something that can stick around for quite a bit. Anthony Beck joining us here on 98.7 ESPN. He's going to be a head coach in the XFL when they start up shop again in February. He'll be with us on the Jet broadcast during the season here on 98.7 ESPN. So you've already uh, dropped Dwayne Johnson's name a couple of times here during our conversation. He's Dwayne Johnson. You you called him DJ. Uh, Most people know him as The Rock. Your relationship with him? What, what do you address him as? Because you've—it's it's three possible sure. things. Yeah, what do I'm you not call sure him? Yeah, be quite. I, I really want to just call him the Rock every time I see him, but I know obviously from from a business standpoint that that probably isn't the best thing. But that seems to be on the tip of my tongue when I do. <laughs> uh, I have bumped into him, right? So you, I, I think actually the one day I called him three different names uh, during when we all met as a group. So. Uh, yeah, I, the next time I do see him, I am going to like listen. How, how do you want to be addressed? I mean, what's the what's what's the name you want to you know be called by? Because everybody does call him different things, even within uh, within the company. So uh, you know, he's awesome though. He he's super humble. Uh, he's someone that, like I said, super passionate. And uh, he you know he, he there's not a lot of things he's failed at in life. You know, so this is something that uh, kind of a bit of a chip on his shoulder with this league and, and how they're going to go about it. Well, let me ask you this. Do you have his number in your phone yet? Did you get the number? <laughs> I don't have the number. Oh. I mean, you know, Danny, Danny Garcia, clearly, you know, she, she's our, you know, our Roger Goodell. She's part owner of the league. Uh, she's the first female owner of a professional sports league. I mean, she, she's the one that is really, uh, you know, the eyes, the ears of the everyday operation. And, uh, you know, she's got her name behind this. And she's brilliant. She's super, super smart, super articulate. Uh, she's very successful in the business world. And, uh, you know, see, seeing her multiple times, you know, she's been at the showcase uh, cases and, uh, you know, saw her obviously in our meetings. And, you know, she's going to be the focal point of the league. But, uh, yeah, you know, DJ, Dwayne, uh, he's he's in the mix. I don't have a cell. I probably don't need to text him or throw any random things at him. Uh, there's a lot of other people we can do that with, but uh, from top to bottom, they, they've hired some really good people. 
Because I'm just curious, like, if you had the number, like, what would you save it as in your phone? You know what I mean? Like, what name are you writing in your phone? That's what, because I think that would be the answer. Well, I, like, I mean, when I text you, I don't say, I don't say, I don't start off with Dan. I mean, you know, it's, I, you know, at, at, at one point, maybe he's like, hey, you know, take my show. Let me know. You know, I got a movie in 2025. I, I may have a spot for it. Who knows what that may be down there. Maybe there's a sport movie that's going to come up. I don't know. I, you know. Uh, he's just, uh, it's kind of cool. It is a surreal, like, look, I've met a lot of great, you know, important people, celebrities. Clearly he's a bucket list guy that, you know, uh, is pretty, pretty surreal to meet. So it's kind of cool. Look forward to that. You know, you want to kind of like run through the wall for a guy. You don't, you yeah. don't want the, the thing, if you're, you know, kind of doing things with him, you don't want it to fail. So, uh, that's why they brought me on board. I feel that way. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make this a successful league. And you realize you have bragging rights over him, right, when it comes to football. I mean, you you were a first-round pick in the NFL, and you played a decade-plus in the league. And like you said, he was that 54th guy, you know, couldn't quite crack the lineup. Now, some, some, somewhere along the way, I think things worked out for him all right. But at least in oh, terms yeah. of football, you've got the bragging rights. If you're in the same room together, when it comes to just getting in that three-point stance, and let it, you got the win there, my friend. You know that. And you know it's pretty cool. Like he's he's pretty adamant about making he making that known too, which is kind of cool. You know, I mean, uh, you know, he's a dude's yoked up, big dude. We took a picture together. I mean, I get to meet him. You kind of size the guy up, and you know, you're like next. You're to bigger the rock than he is, though, stuff. right? I uh, yeah, I am. I, yeah, I am bigger than him, but you know, clearly he's got a little more muscle mass than I do these days. But uh, you know, he's motivating me to maybe you know hit the gym a little harder and then come back uh, you know even bigger, better, and better. So. Uh, We'll see what happens for the season, but uh, no, it's uh, you know it's it's a unique uh, deal. He's 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 a good dude. Uh, I'm excited for uh, you know what he's got on the table for us, and uh, it's uh, it's going to be pretty cool. Anthony Becht, our guest here on 98.7 ESPN. Well, I'm happy for you. You know that. And I know that this is something that you've wanted to pursue for a while and now getting the opportunity to do it. I know you'll do a great job with it. And, uh, you know, you got a fan of me. you got a fan of a lot of people listening, I'm sure, that want to see you make the most of this chance. Um, let's talk some real football, though. Gronk called it quits again for the second time. We'll see if he's true to his word. You see him right underneath your nose in Tampa the last couple of years, but of course you're familiar with him from his time in New England here. As somebody who played the position for a living, what did Rob Gronkowski do to the modern-day tight end as we know it? Yeah, the most complete tight end, I think, to play the game. I mean, the guy dominated in all aspects. Uh, tremendous blocker. Uh, you know, We're never going to talk about that because he's, his numbers are sick. I think the pace that he was at, from a number standpoint, prior to kind of getting a couple of injuries late in his career, was off the charts. Uh, you know, played with a, you know, I think when you, you know, listen, you, everyone talks about it factor, right, with quarterbacks, and and really that applies to any position. Gronk was a, a guy that just had the it factor. There were no worries about him. You know, here's a guy that, you know, never spent a dollar of his salary. You know, it, here's a guy that, you know, kept things simple in life, you know, appreciated everything that life had to offer him, but yet still was professional enough that when, when it was ball time and trying to, and time to go, you know, no one could match him. The work ethic was there. You know, we see him out and about doing all these things, these, you know, parties and all these events and all these over the years. But honestly, this guy's busting his butt, training in the off season, working hard. We don't see a lot of that stuff from him, but we know he's doing it. And he, he did it at a high level. You just don't, walk on the field and be the best player at your position uh, in the world uh, by just showing up. So, uh, you know, is he done for sure? Who knows? I mean, he's in great shape. 
there is a point where you're like, okay, if it's not with Brady, who's it going to be with? So uh, I think he's got a lot of things on his in his in his bucket list. He wants he got another ring out of the situation here in Tampa, which I think was great. So uh, you know he, he goes down. I don't know if it's arguably. I mean, I, I really do believe uh, pound for pound, he's the best tight end ever played the game. All right, let's real quick, a couple of thoughts on the locals here because offseason is over, training camp gets underway in about a month. Let me start with the Giants. You know, this is a new program for them, new GM, new coach, of course, and really the last chance for Daniel Jones to prove that he is the long-term answer at the quarterback position for the Giants. Uh, Let's start there. Is the week one starting quarterback for the Giants in 2023, next year, is he on the roster right now? I think he is. I think Daniel Jones, uh, if anybody can uh, create success for him, and, and, and it's, it's not necessarily, you know, it's more than just Daniel Jones. I mean, you know, you got to have the pieces. you got to have guys execute and, and play better around them. And I think they do have those pieces. I mean, that, you know, they, didn't, they didn't really get much out of their receiving core, which they invested some money in last year with draft and, and also, uh, you know, in free agency. They had some injuries. Uh, now, does Daniel Jones need to play better? Absolutely. Does he need to improve uh, in his skill set? Yeah, but he does have a skill set that can win. I think it's doable. And I think Brian Dables, if anybody can do it and give it its all for a year, and this is his best chance, I think it is. I mean, look what he did with Josh Allen. I think it's a perfect example. I think a lot of people weren't very as high on Josh Allen than some of the other quarterbacks that came out of his draft class. And ultimately, he looks like the de facto, the stud of the group, along with a couple others. But in order, he's done an exceptional job, and that's under Dable's watch. So, um, I, I, let's see. I, you know, I, I'm going to say he is. I'm going to say he uh, he has a, a good year this year. But honestly, it's all predicated on everybody else around him, and I think that's where the biggest uh, you know strides have to be made: is the offensive line, the playmakers, the running game, all those things. And that's that's a lot on on Dable's plate. So we'll see how it works out. Uh, and and the plan that kind of unrolls here for their team this year. And when you look at the Jets, obviously personnel upgrades, they've made improvements, free agency, the draft and whatnot. What's the biggest X factor, you think, if this team is going to win more than, what did they win last year, four games, if they are going to continue to move this program upwards? Well, you know, I, listen, the quarterback clearly, I mean, it has to uh, improve. I think he's hes heading in the right direction. Uh, is he there yet? No. Uh, he's going to have to play these games this year and, and really learn quicker and, and get better quicker than he did game to game last year. It uh, looks like he put some good work in the offseason. Uh, the team clearly has weapons around him, not only big play weapons, but safe weapons as well, which I think is huge, but multiple safe weapons when you talk about the adding to the running back core and and the tight end room I mean it's just uh there's a plethora of guys that can really help the success of the quarterback he doesn't have to do everything great but if he just gets the ball to his playmakers he can have that much of a better season um I'm excited for the defense you know I, I can't wait to see sauce out there mm-hmm. I think he's uh he's the real deal I think he's going to be a guy that's going to be great I think there's I should be on the defense this year in general. I think that, that they have to take big strides as a unit. You know, a healthy Carl uh, Lawson, uh, you, you, you add some of the, uh, the young talent uh, that they got with Jermaine Johnson uh, in, in the draft. And, you know, you think about what they could do teaming up uh, also with Franklin Myers and, and, of course, the guys that are, you know, already in uniform that, you know, you think, okay, you know, th- these guys have a chance 
to, to be special. And I think that that's ultimately going to be the biggest uh, deal when you talk about the depth and the things that they're doing. So uh, I think the, the rookie class has a, a chance to be one of the best rookie classes they've ever had going back to, you know, 2000 when we had five guys that played 60 plus years in the league. So uh, this is on paper, a really good look and a really good opportunity for these guys. I'm excited for the team. I mean, look, I cover them, you cover them. Yeah. You know, we've, we've been through the seasons. We've seen what they've done. This is a really sweet-looking roster. Uh, I just pray that everybody's healthy and everybody's available the first week of the season. I think that, that gives the excitement a little bit more uh, flash and cachet if that's the case week one. I agree with you. And like I said, you know, we could use some uh, more uplifting Sundays what we've had for the last few years from this team. And I think that so far the piece is in place <laughs> for that to happen. I mean, that goes without saying. Uh, before I let you go real quick, um, how's Rocco doing? How's uh, the adjustment going there for the big uh, first season coming up in the fall here with the Cyclones? Yeah, everything's going uh, really good. Uh, he had an outstanding spring. He got a ton of reps. They threw a lot at him. Uh, he's up there for the summer. Uh, we'll get him back for a couple days, uh, July 4th weekend. And uh, But he's grinding, he's working, he's training, he's throwing. Uh, you know, he uh, shot me a picture the other day, uh, this weekend, Saturday, went up to the facility, he was throwing to uh, Lazard uh, for, for the morning. Al Lazard, there. So that, cool. That's pretty sweet. How about that, right? Yeah, so pretty cool stuff. But, man, he's dialed in, and, you know, he's going to go compete, man. Listen, he's young, he's got a lot to learn, uh, you know, for me, I'd love to see him redshirt, but, you know, just when you're a competitor and, and you're trying to be great, I mean, sometimes, you know, the, it comes quicker. But, you know, for me, I know how my career went in the time that I needed mentally, physically. Uh, he's much farther ahead than I ever was, so uh, that'll be interesting to see. But, you know, at some point he's going to get his chance, and, and uh, you know, that's, you know, that's going to show where the work and the time and the effort's been put in uh, when you get that, that opportunity. So we'll see when it happens. It may be this year, next year, the year after, but, uh, right now, everything's heading in the right direction. We're proud of him. I can't wait to see his journey and, and see how it all unfolds. Well, you're one from one as a coach and as a dad with him and the job you've done. So keep up the good work. And again, congratulations on the XFL opportunity. Can't wait to see you in action there. And uh, But next up, though, we'll see you for Jets uh, in about a month here when we get the season going. Thanks again for calling in, pal. We'll talk soon, all right? No doubt, Dan. Thanks, man. Have a great weekend. All right, there's Anthony Becton. His son Rocco is going to be a freshman at Iowa State this year, playing in the Big 12, highly recruited out of Florida, uh, quarterback. And, uh, you know, the future is bright for him. Can't wait to see him do his thing uh, in the Big 12 there. Welcome back. Dan Grasso with you here on 98.7 ESPN. Just two nights until the NBA draft over at the Barclays Center. What will the Knicks do? What will the rest of the NBA do? Well, to help us answer some of those questions, we bring on our next guest. He is a all-knowing observer of college basketball from Fox Sports. It is the one and only John Fanta, who's nice enough to give me a couple of minutes. JF, what's going on, my friend? Thanks for joining me. How are you? DG, it's great to be with you. I'm doing well. This draft is very intriguing, my friend. And the Knicks at 11, I do think, have an opportunity to get a player who could be more than just your, your average draft year 11th pick. And it would not shock me if the New York Knicks attempt to move up in this draft. That is the scuttlebutt, and that's what we're hearing, and all eyes, of course, are on that number four spot in Sacramento. Now, look, Sacramento's not just willingly going to give the pick up. We know that because it takes two to tango, and they want to get something in value in return going their way. But 
let's say, you know, for argument's sake, should the Knicks move up, they get into that number four spot. Supposedly, Jaden Ivey is the uh, object of their affection there. Tell me right now, Jaden Ivey, what type of player would the Knicks be getting or anybody be getting if he is taken in that fourth spot? Well, you're getting a top three athlete in this draft. He is a lead guard who has a terrific ability to change the pace of a game when he gets in the open floor. And I think that Ivy still has only scratched the surface. I think his perimeter shot can get better, and I think it will get better. Uh, Defensively is an area in which I'd like to see him improve. But this is a player who can provide the scoring burst at the next level. He did things this past year, D.G., at Purdue that, to me, uh, just said NBA, uh, man amongst boys, those types of moments. So I look at Jaden Ivey as a guy who can really uh, benefit a team in a sporadic way, potentially, from the get-go as a rookie. But he is a player that has an electric ability to make shots. This is someone who can step back, he can pull up, he can create his own shots out of whether it's an isolation or a pick and roll. And and I just look at him, his strides in the lane are that of a guard who can just change a game in the NBA. He's got this ability to both thrill near the rim, while doing it in a controlling manner. So I'm high on Jaden Ivey, and I think him coming back to Purdue this past year and really developing at the college level, showcase what that can mean for a player. And he talked about that with the press yesterday. I was on his Zoom availability. I'm so impressed by his demeanor. He learned the game from his mother, who's an ex-WNBA player. Jaden Ivey is a home run if you get him at four. Yeah, his mom's an assistant coach, or the coach, I should say, at Notre Dame, as a matter of fact, for the women's squad over there. So you're right. He's got that tutelage there, and you're right. I mean, and that's big boy basketball, playing for Purdue, playing in the Big Ten, and you are in the grind night in and night out over there. Talking some NBA draft with John Fanta of Fox Sports here on 98.7 ESPN. All right, let's say the alternative, Nick Stan Pat at number 11. You alluded to it a little bit earlier. This is a deep enough draft to where you still think that they would be able to get a quality player at number 11. One of the names that's kind of been in the conversation already, John, is A.J. Griffin, a dookie, and a guy who's probably as good a three-point shooter as we have in this draft, is not? Yes, he is as good of a three-point shooter that you have in this draft, and he's somebody that I think will be in the three-point contest on All-Star Weekend. Now, that doesn't count for winning games and making the postseason, so Nick fans want that, but that's what A.J. Griffin can do for you. He's going to come in. He's going to be a guy that can consistently knock down perimeter shots, which, look, if you take a look at the Knicks offensively, somebody like A.J. Griffin can step in, and, and I think, Dan, he can supply that punch from beyond the arc on a consistent basis. Now, there are some injury concerns with Griffin, And those in NBA circles are a little bit concerned about that. I think if you didn't have some of the quiet concerns, we could be talking about Griffin as a top five or top six pick in this draft. So for me, uh, his pure ability to score the ball from Mm -hmm. beyond the arc 
fits what the NBA is. That's what you have to be able to do to find a role. Defense, a bit of a question mark, but the upside speaks for itself with this kid. There's so much to like about him. And another guy, his dad played now, coaches in the NBA. He's groomed for this. He's mature for this. So for me, A.J. Griffin, I, I think he's a guy that, that could arguably go 8, 9, or 10. If he's on the board there at 11, the Knicks are staring at someone who, again, could outperform what their actual number pick is. And that's what the intrigue is with this draft. There's a lot of high upside, but of low ceiling, of low floor players just by nature of the class itself. Of course, you had to get Adrian Griffin in there because he's a Seton Hall Pirate, just like yourself. You had to throw that plug in there. I saw what you did. That's sneaky. Uh, talking with John Fanta, Fox Sports, NBA draft just a couple of days away. Let's go to the top of this draft. Would you say that it would be a major upset if the top three, in some order, aren't the three bigs, Jabari, Chet Holmgren, and Paolo? It would be a total shock, in my opinion. Those three in some way, shape, or form are going to be the top three in this draft. Now, there is a rumor out there that keeps growing, and that is that the Orlando Magic, who have done their due diligence with this number one pick, could go in a different direction from Jabari Smith. Many thought for weeks that Jabari Smith would be the number one pick. For the record, I still think he's going to be the number one pick in this draft. But as time has gone on, Ben Carroll's case seems to be rising. Why? Because look at it. Ben Carroll led Duke to a Final Four. He showed that he can score the basketball at multiple levels. Just because of his perimeter shot not being at the level that you would like it to be, he only shot around 33% from three this past year, Dan. It didn't end up deterring him from still being able to impact the college game at such a high level, attacking the rim, making things happen at the cup, and finishing. I mean, he's got that combination of an old-school player uh, with the modern ability to make things happen because he can run the floor so well at six foot ten, two 250 pounds. I think Ben Carroll is the most NBA-ready player in this draft because he can score the basketball in so many ways. So, to me, it's a debate of one, two, Jabari Smith, Paolo Bancaro. I, I still, uh, as, as this evening goes on, I'm wondering what Sam Presti's going to do with that number two pick. I don't even know if Sam Presti knows what he's going to do with that number two pick. But, uh, for my money, I'm still sitting here saying it's going to be some way, shape, or form of Smith, Bancaro, and then the unicorn of this draft, the most polarizing prospect in this draft, is Chet Holmgren, DG, because he has such a unique game. He can score the basketball in such a variety of ways. He's not afraid of the contact. He's got the work ethic. He embraces physicality. The question is, can a 195-pound seven-footer, yeah, if he puts on 15, 20 pounds, that's fine. He's not going to get to 240, 250. Can someone of his particular size actually handle the 82-game workload in the NBA? That is the question with Chet Holmgren. It's an all-or-nothing debate. Either you love him or you hate him. He is the wild card at the top of this draft. Absolutely. And Paolo is the most NBA-ready, as you said. He's also got the NBA-ready body. 
The other two guys, Chet and Jabari, they got some filling out to do, but Holmgren probably a little bit more of a wild card, to your point. And Jabari's almost a year younger than Chet Holmgren is, too, when you think about it. Is it fair to say that Paolo is the quote-unquote safest pick in this draft, or no? I think that that is a a fair assessment. I I think Bancaro's perimeter shot does concern me a little bit because at some point here in the NBA, you're going to face matchups in which it's not just easy to go to the basket and score like you can in college. Uh, But what I like about Paolo is he's a facilitator. Like, this guy does not get enough credit for the kind of passer that he is, averaging over three assists per game. So I chuckle to myself thinking if he lands at three, if he actually fell to number three to the Rockets, the fact that they are that they would have the NBA Rookie of the Year in Jalen Green, uh, or rather an All-NBA Rookie in Green, mm-hmm. and then would be able to add in Van Carroll to the fold, by having the third pick, that is quite a one-two punch in Houston if if Van Carroll does fall that far. But I would say he's the safest pick. The question is, are these general managers at the top of this draft going to go safe or are they going to bet on potential? Yeah, and now if Houston could just do something with that $47 million owed to John Wall, then they'd really be doing something down there. But, you know, we'll see if they can make that happen. Uh, John Fanta, last question for he on the NBA draft is, so we talk about the three guys. Give me somebody, if something crazy should happen, whether it's the two pick, whether it's the three pick, somebody trades in, whatever. Give me a guy that you could see would crash the party potentially and be a top three selection in this draft? It's easy. It's Shaden Sharp out of Kentucky, 19 years old, a six foot six wing. He's such an interesting prospect, DG, because here's the problem we don't have enough sample size. I mean, the fact of the matter play. is this with Shaden Sharp, he, he didn't suit up for Kentucky, and it's hard to tell what he really is to this draft. And so that's why he is so talked about because he is the epitome of the boom or bust prospect. Look, he worked out for teams. He did his own workout at the combine. He's quick. He's agile. He fits what it means to be a multidimensional type of scorer. But since 2019, Shaden Sharp has only participated in 42 games of competitive basketball. And this past year, he didn't hit the floor for John Calipari at Kentucky. So there's so much intrigue with this kid because does he check off the boxes of frame, athleticism, shot-making ability? Yes, it's what NBA teams are looking for. But you are taking a risk if you're picking Shaden Sharp just by virtue of the fact that we haven't seen him go five-on-five competitively at all in the last year. And only 42 times total in the last three years, he is the example, the epitome of the example of COVID-19 impacting someone's career path because it altered it, some injuries altered it. We just don't have much of a sample size on this player, and that's why Sharp could go third or fourth and it wouldn't shock me. He could go 10th, 11th, or 12th, and it really wouldn't surprise me because he is the example of high-risk, high reward he is that person in this draft if there's somebody crashing the party i would be very surprised if it wasn't shade and sharp 
How about that? High risk, high reward. He said 10 or 11. Imagine he falls into the Knicks' laps and he's there at 11. Wonder what the brass will do over there at Madison Square Garden. Very, very interesting. Fanta, appreciate a couple of minutes, my friend. Can't wait to get some of the answers to this question or these questions in a couple of nights. Always appreciate a couple of minutes, my friend. We'll do it again soon. Dan, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. All righty. There's John Fanta, Fox Sports, talking a little NBA draft with us. This is the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN. <laughs>